We're going to continue in our sermon series, uh, Get Used to Different, right now. Um, We are on episode six in The Chosen Season 2, and we're looking at this mini-series. It looks at the life of Jesus through his first followers, and it's such a unique representation uh, that helps us kind of in a creative way imagine what it really could have been like to see Jesus walk on earth and start his ministry, begin to develop followers of him, which we are now following in that way of Jesus also. And so um, there's so much in this series that has been teaching us about how life is different with Jesus, and it's been great. Uh, In episode six this week, we're going to see Jesus make some people frustrated. He's going to upset some people. He's going to upset some religious leaders. Hello, probably those with priestly garments and pomegranates on their robes. Uh, Jesus upsets the religious leaders. Um, There's an account of this in Mark chapter 2, if you want to go see where in Scripture this scene happens. But in The Chosen, um, basically the the scene we're going to watch right right here in just a second, Uh, the disciples are running out of food and they let Jesus know, and he has this great idea. He says, we should seek the Father about this. Oh, yeah, yeah, maybe we should pray. That's a great idea. They go to a local synagogue to pray, to seek the Father about their lack of food situation, and they find a man who has a withered hand. Jesus heals the man, and the problem with that is it's the Sabbath day, and no one's supposed to work on the Sabbath. The Jewish leaders had even made a list of additional rules, 39 extra action verbs you should not do on the Sabbath because you might break the Sabbath if you do one of those. Very, very high bar to meet. And Jesus broke one of these in healing the man with the withered hand. So he's driven out of the synagogue. They are so angry that he is not taking the Sabbath as seriously as they would like him to. Um, As the disciples and Jesus are walking away from that synagogue, this is the conversation uh, in The Chosen that takes place. And I want you to watch this and pay attention to how Jesus uh, upsets the religious leaders. Are they going to send the town guards after us? I think those guys are the town guards. All right, so for those of you who didn't see, first he interrupted the reading simply by standing next to this guy with a paralyzed hand. (laughs) The the priest. (laughs) What? Reaping or harvesting on Shabbat. Oh, yes. I'm sorry, I've been so hungry, I forgot what day it is. You may. of our little synagogue and of Torah. You will tell us your name, your lineage, your virtue, and now your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Have you not read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He entered the house of God in the time of Ahimelech, the priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, but only for the priests. You would compare yourself to David. 
It was an emergency. Or have you not read in the law how on Shabbat the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath, but are guiltless? That's for Levites. Are you a Levite of priestly lineage? Listen carefully. Something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. The Son of Man. Let's go. So such a funny scene to see. Jesus upsets the religious leaders of the time because he tells them that their focus on a very high bar of following every single rule for the Sabbath at all costs is not actually what they should be focusing on. And he even points out that that's causing them to not extend mercy to the man with the withered hand, uh, to not allow the disciples to eat even though they're hungry. He thinks that they have gotten some things wrong. And this is a little bit mind-blowing for the Jewish leaders of the time because they thought they knew the way to get close to God. It was by following the law, by keeping the law at all costs, by keeping themselves holy, by especially following some of the laws. And Jesus, he, he just kind of uh, messes all of that up for them. So the question that I want to ask today, the question that we're going to get to through some of Jesus' other teachings is how do we please God with our lives? How do we live good and godly lives that are pleasing to God? Is it by following all the rules to a T? Or is there another way? Is there something more than just that? And I think Jesus is going to show us that, that there is something more. Before we get into that and look at more scripture, would you pray with me? God, I thank you that you are here with us, that you have an important thing to show us in your word today about what it means to follow Jesus. I pray that you would open up our hearts, that you would open up our lives and our minds to you right now, that you could teach us through your word, and that what you teach us would be something that would work its way into our lives, that it would actually transform us to be a little bit more like you. Help us on this journey. We need you. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. There's another encounter that Jesus has with the religious leaders in the book of Matthew where he uh, begins to pronounce woes to the religious leaders. A woe is like the opposite of a blessing. And this is uh, one that captures really the underlying intent of Jesus' conversation about the Sabbath. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside also will be clean. As I was reading this scripture this week, I had this mental image come to my mind of, you know, imagine if you ate a big bowl of, of chili, and you could argue if there should be beans in it or not, but either way, um, the chili gets old and crusty, like the leftover that's at the bottom. And if you set that in the sink and forgot to wash it for a few days, but you like washed other dishes around it, the outside of the chili bowl would be really dirty. The inside would be really gross. 
And so if you had some guests coming over and you took that bowl and you said, I need this bowl for my guests, I'm going to clean the outside really, really well. And you really put some elbow grease into it and you clean the outside so it's shining. And you put it on the table and you tried to serve your guests in that bowl, what would they say? They would look in the bowl and say, ooh, like days old chili stains, not cool. What Jesus is saying is this is what we sometimes do with our lives, that we, we will try at times to make our lives appear very good on the outside, but on the inside, it, it's like a dried, crusty bowl that used to have chili in it. I mean, it's gross. Jesus was very much speaking into his times in a society that took the rules way too seriously. Um, When I read this, um, I'm not concerned for our congregation that you're going overboard on the Jewish law, all 613 of them, partly because we live in a society where workaholism is alive and well. I don't think we have a struggle not keeping the Sabbath. I think Jesus might actually want to teach us a little bit about resting in Sabbath. And then, let's face it, we like bacon, and most of the kosher food laws just aren't going to work for many of us. So um, I... I don't think the message for us is that we're taking the Jewish regulations too seriously. But I think we make up our own rules, our own things that are focused around an outward behavior that will maybe tell us if we think we're good enough or not. I think we do this just fine all by ourselves as Christians. When I was growing up in the church, um, I was... uh, thankful to grow up in a, in a family that we were at church a whole lot. Basically, it was like a second home for us, like Sunday mornings, Sunday afternoons, Wednesday evenings. We spent so much time there. I grew up with the assurance that God loved me, that God existed. It was so good for me. As I started getting older, probably like uh, fourth, fifth grade, maybe, maybe up in the sixth and seventh grade, I started to wonder a little bit more about why would God love me? And I had a great answer. I went to church every Sunday. Of course God loved me. I went to church. And I was a pretty good kid. I didn't get in trouble nearly as much as those other kids over there. So of course God would love me, right? And when I went to church, I went to Sunday school. And when the teachers in Sunday school asked a question, guess who knew the answer? Oh, yeah, I'm getting some Jesus points. Uh, Jesus is usually the answer, right? And so why would God not love me? And then the kicker, the thing to top it all off, I knew how to wear a nice collared shirt, normally not with pomegranates, but that's a different thing. Um, I knew how to dress like a good church kid on Sunday, so the older ladies in the congregation would come up and say, you look like such a nice young man. How could God not love that? Thankfully, there were people that loved me and helped me come to understand the gospel a little better than that, to to realize that's not actually what causes God to love me. But how many of us actually live like God's acceptance of us is dependent on how much we look like we're really good Christians? I think we do this all the time, whether we realize it or not. Most of the time, I think it's deeply subconscious. Do Do I go to church regularly? Do people see that? Because that makes me feel like, yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty well. Jesus probably likes me. Um, do, I, do I read my Bible, uh, especially when other people might be watching? Do I uh, serve in the church or with a nonprofit, or do I do my good part in the world? Most of us have probably looked at someone else's life before and seen some major sin, and we've thought, well, at least I don't struggle with that. Feel a little bit self-righteous, right? 
we do the same thing that, you, that the Jewish religious leaders do. We, we try to manicure the outward behavior of our lives to look like we have it all together, hide the faults, cover up the places where it's not looking so good, and then we think, all right, God, you like what you see, right? And what Jesus is going to teach us is that there's a different way. The beatitude for this week is Matthew 5, 8. It is this, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. It doesn't say, blessed are you when you have perfect church attendance. It doesn't say, blessed are you when you're not as bad as all the other people. Blessed are you when you're a good, tax-paying, morally acceptable citizen. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I think that they shall see God. It's a reference to being close to God. When you see God, you only see God if you get close enough to see God. I think what all of us probably want deep down is a closeness with God. And if we're asking that question, how do I be a godly person that can be close with God? How can I have that fellowship with God in my life? How can I make sure that my life is headed towards the right direction, towards God? It's not the outward behavior, but it's something inside. It's, it's that purity of heart. In the Bible, um, in both the Hebrew and the Greek, the word heart, is, it, it has kind of a deep meaning. It's the, it's the locus of control in our life. It's the, our feelings and our affections, our desires and our will. It's not just a matter of what actually happens on the outside. It's a matter of what's the internal motivator for all those things, right? The heart is much more difficult to control. Um, and if, if you've done any self-reflection at all, it's, um, it's a lot easier to hide the broken things in the heart, right? What's really interesting about this beatitude, it's actually Jesus um, saying something about a psalm. There's a psalm in uh, the book of Psalms, Psalm 24, that basically in a poetic way takes, uh, takes like four verses to say the same thing the beatitude does. I want to show it to you real quick because it's so fascinating. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4 say this. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? It's a great question. This is the question of um, who is it that can get close to God? What does it look like to live a kind of life where we get to be close with God and headed towards God with our lives? And then the psalmist answers, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Make sure you're listening there. That's the same thing as the beatitude, right? Who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. And one of the interesting things that, you know, this says clean hands and a pure heart. It seems that God cares both about the external purity in our lives and the internal purity in our lives. And I wonder if Jesus focused on the purity of heart and the beatitude because of his audience at the time and how they over-focused on the external. And maybe that's why he doesn't say clean hands. Maybe that's why he focused on purity of heart. And he meant that with that, you also will have clean hands. The psalm goes on, and this is the part that is kind of really cool for me. They will receive blessing from the Lord. Remember the beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart. They will receive blessing from the Lord in vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. If you're seeking the face of God, if you want to see God, the thing that allows you to experience that is a pure heart. 
That's what the psalm is saying. That's what this beatitude is saying. It's not uh, making sure that you modify your behavior when you're around uh, certain people so they will think better of you. And it's not trying to prove to God that you're somehow not as bad as the other people. It's, it's allowing your heart to come close to God and allowing your heart to be clean. That's what allows us to grow close to God. There's a name for this that in our Methodist tradition has, has come up a number of times. Um, that name is the title of this sermon. It's Religion of the Heart. John Wesley actually uses this term, and it's fascinating. John Wesley uses the term at the end of a sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, which is what the Beatitudes are in. And what John Wesley says is, is that religion of the heart, I got to get my notes because I don't want to say it wrong. He says, it is love excluding sin, love filling the heart. John Wesley knew that religion of the heart has to do with God's love coming into our lives in such a way that our hearts get filled with it. Now, one of the things I love about Wesleyan theology and the Methodist movement and all of that heritage that we are a part of is how it took what the Reformation reinforced, that we are saved by grace through faith, right? We cannot work our way to God. Uh, We cannot impress God enough to absolve our sin. We are only saved by the work of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection, And in that, in placing our faith in Jesus, we get a new status before God, right? We get a new acceptance. We get to be in the family of God. Hallelujah. That is awesome. And what John Wesley said that was so interesting is that that is not the end of a journey. That's actually the beginning, right? That's not the end. Being accepted by God through faith is the beginning because the rest of the journey involves not just having a change in our status, but beginning to experience an actual change in our lives. And this is what John Wesley refers to as a religion of the heart. It's where uh, we don't just say we have faith so we know we're going to heaven when we die. We also place our hearts before God and allow God to actually change our lives. And it's a powerful thing. It's a compelling thing, and it's an exciting thing. Religion of the heart. Now, I think this phrase, religion of the heart, could be misunderstood, so I want to hedge against a couple quick uh, misunderstandings if you just kind of woke up and heard me say religion of the heart just to make sure you're not misunderstanding me. We're not talking about a religion where we're only concerned with the inner life and the externals don't matter, right? That would be convenient for a lot of us because we'd be like, yeah, it doesn't really matter how I behave. I can act how I want when I'm in really bad traffic and God's not going to hold it against me and just do what I want. That would be a misunderstanding. What Jesus is saying is it's not that the inner life matters only, it's that both inner and external things in our lives matter, right? Our heart and our behavior, they're linked. The other thing that religion of the heart is not saying is it's not uh, referring to some common cultural notion that we should just follow our heart. I think that notion is to make our heart almost like a replacement God, and our hearts make really bad gods, uh, mostly, Jeremiah says uh, the heart is deceptive beyond measure. Um, and so, I, I don't know, if you do any self-reflection, you'll know you can probably fool yourself better than anybody. That would be a really bad God. So God is not inviting us to make our hearts our gods. Religion of the heart is when we place our hearts before God and we let God change our hearts to conform our hearts to God. Now, um, another thing about this beatitude is that I I didn't realize this until this week, but the entire rest of the Sermon on the Mount is actually, um, it's painting a picture of what it looks like 
to have a purity of heart. And I had never seen this before, but in looking at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and and really focusing on this beatitude, uh, this is the key to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. It's, It's that Jesus is not just calling us to certain Christian behaviors. He's calling us to let God change our heart. And here's how some of that looks. Jesus says it's not just about avoiding murder. A religion of the heart seeks to also avoid getting so angry that you hurl an insult at someone. And it seeks to reconcile with people who do you wrong. Religion of the heart is not about just trying to stay married and avoiding a literal affair. A religion of the heart goes to the great extent to root out lust from our lives and flee that temptation to have an affair with our minds. It's not just about loving our neighbors and those who are going to love us back, but a religion of the heart goes beyond this to love even our enemies and to pray for good things for their lives. It's not just about forcing ourselves to look good and generous when other people are watching and make sure we put money in when the offering plate goes by. It's religion of the heart is about truly being generous and giving even when no one else knows that you did it. It's not about praying and fasting and going to church and reading our Bibles and doing all the different religious activities and practices just because we want people to see that we're good Christian people. Religion of the heart does those things because we are yearning for God. We want more of God in our lives. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I read the Sermon on the Mount or when I read that list there, that doesn't seem easy. Man, that that actually seems hard. Jesus, I thought you were supposed to make this easier for us, right? This was supposed to be some good news here. Jesus does, he does raise the standard. He doesn't just raise the standard, though. He also raises what's possible because we're never supposed to achieve that on our own. This isn't a new kind of working our way to God. This is both seeing the high call for the people of God and knowing that we have a Savior who can actually change our hearts. And a big part of the Christian journey, when we open up our lives and let the Holy Spirit come and work within us, we can actually experience that kind of character change, that kind of life change, the new life of Jesus starting to build itself in us. And so that's, that's the encouragement. Now, how do we do this? I was reading in the 100-Day Challenge um, in the book of James this past week, and a, a small section of James really stood out to me. One of the things I love, James is a very practical book, and it's very focused on kind of uh, putting your faith into practice. And this is a little red part of James that is all about putting your faith into practice, but not in a way that is very showy. Um, this is what it looks like to practice a religion of the heart. I want to show you this, and then I want to explain it, because you might not like this at first. Here's what it says. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And like I said, that there's some stuff in here that's a little uncomfortable. Like my pastor just told me to grieve and mourn and wail. That doesn't sound very good. This is a picture of the process of repentance. That's what this is. It's the process of repentance. Repentance begins with us being aware of what's going on in the interior of our lives. 
where is my heart needing to be brought closer to God? Because it's just not there, right? Where is my heart full of sin? And I, and I can try to cover it up, but if I want to get to the root of it, I actually need to bring that before God. We recognize where we have sin in our life, and then we develop a heartfelt sorrow about our sin. That's actually a part of the repentance process. Um, and it's not about beating ourselves up, but it's about, you know, if you're, if you're making your kid apologize and they say, sorry, you're like, nope, try again, <laughs> right? At least in my house, we, we practice that sometimes. And it's about actually developing a heartfelt need to come clean to God. Not, not just to know it up here, but to feel it here. And then when we do, here's, here, here's what it says. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. That is how we wash our hands when they're sinful. That's how we purify our hearts when they're double-minded. And that bottom verse, that humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Friends, this is how we develop pure hearts. Not, not by willing ourselves to have pure hearts. We can't force ourselves to make our hearts clean, but it's by identifying the places where they're not, and then we draw close to God. And God, God's the one that actually cleans our hearts. There's a side story in the episode of The Chosen this week with Mary Magdalene, and Pastor Stella was telling us a little bit about this last week. Um, I, I don't think this is a part of the historical Mary Magdalene necessarily, although it could have been, right? But Mary, in the previous episode, was triggered by encountering a demon-possessed man. And um, like many of us have experienced before in different ways, she falls into some former sin in her life, right? She kind of backslides she goes back to old ways, and then she finds herself at this rock-bottom point thinking, what did I do? I squandered my opportunity. Jesus saved me once. I can't go back again. Praise the Lord. She had some friends that came out, Matthew and Simon, um, in some awkward ways. They came and said, come back with us. We didn't earn it either. And I want you to watch Mary's encounter with Jesus as she comes back to the camp and rejoins the group. And she doesn't want to come before Jesus because there's shame and there's embarrassment, right? She would probably rather wish that she could just paper over it and pretend it didn't happen. But here's what I think it looks like to bring our hearts to Jesus. Do you need anything? Where is he? In his tent. Should I wait? No. I will take it to him. It's not you. There's quite a lot going on right now. So it's good to have you back. I don't know what to say. I don't require much. I'm so ashamed. You redeemed me and I just threw it all away. Well, that's not much of a redemption if it can be lost in a day, is it? 
I owe you everything. But I just don't think I can do it. Do what? Live up to it. Repay you. How could I leave? How could I go back to the place I was? And I didn't even... I didn't even come back on my own. They had to come get me. <sighs> I just can't live up to it. Well, that's true. <laughs> but you don't have to. I just want your heart. A father just wants your heart. Give us that, which you already have. And the rest will come in time. Did you really think that you'd never struggle or sin again? I know how painful that moment was for you. I shouldn't. Someday. But not here. I'm just so sorry. Look up. <laughs> I can't. You can. Look at me. <laughs> I forgive you. <laughs> it's over. Such a beautiful scene. I love that Mary brings her heart to Jesus in all the rawness and the brokenness, and at the end, Jesus tells her to look up, because blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. So my friends, today, remember that Jesus wants your heart. Jesus wants your heart. He doesn't want you to fake it till you make it. He doesn't want you to pretend like everything's great and you are a great Christian person all by yourself. Uh, he wants you to bring your real self to him so that he can do that work of cleaning and purifying both the internal and the external in your life and aligning your life with God. I, I don't know who you relate to more. Maybe it's Mary Magdalene and the feeling like, man, I have fallen away so far and I've squandered so many opportunities that I just don't know if God will accept me back. And so maybe today you need to hear the good news that uh, God's not keeping score in that way. All he's asking is that you'd bring your real self, brokenness and all, back to him and say, here I am, God. Will you come and make me clean? And it's going to be a process. It's going to take some time. But will you start that today? Maybe you relate more to the religious leaders. If you're like me and you've been in church for a while and somehow we just kind of get trained to put on the act to look like we got it all together, we're really good at that. And maybe today you need to let go of that false confidence. The false confidence that your own being good enough is what gets you in. Maybe because you, you're a little better than some people over there And I wonder if you're willing to bring your heart to God, not just your good Christian behavior, but to let God do a work inside your life. And would you do that today? Would you give God your heart? Let's pray.
Lord, we are reminded of how much we need you. So often we fool ourselves into thinking, yeah, maybe I can do this on my own. Yeah, maybe I'm good enough. And the truth is far from that. That we need you both to give us that new status, to welcome us into the family, Jesus, to forgive us. But we need you continually, God, to be doing a work in our lives. We need you to continually keep us from sin and from evil. We need you to continually remind us to turn back to you. And so come and do that work in our heart today. Come and grow us close to you. Root us deeply in you. Turn us back when we stray. And please, God, be at work in the depth of our lives and our hearts so that we can become more and more like Jesus, our Savior. 